I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast by the Takshashila Institution. We are a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like bringing fresh perspectives to Indian affairs and Indian perspectives to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello, and welcome to All Things Policy. We're going to have two Adityas in today's episode. Uh, there's me, Aditya Ramanathan, and I'm joined by my fellow Aditya, Aditya Parikh. And my goal here today is to get Parikh uh, to tell us about some rather interesting developments connected to the westernmost fringes of the Indian Ocean, really in the Red Sea. Uh, last month, uh, Russia gave the green light to a draft agreement to set up a naval facility in Port Sudan, which is right on the Red Sea and right next to some of the world's most busiest shipping lanes. Now, uh, just to imagine this on the map, uh, this is right north of the much-talked-about hub of naval bases in Djibouti. Uh, if you recall, Djibouti, which is right on the Horn of Africa, or right next to the Horn of Africa, uh, is home to bases from the United States, from France, from China, of course. Uh, even Italy has a facility there, and the Saudis and the United Arab Emirates, for example, have their own facilities there and, and have, in fact, used those uh, for interventions uh, in next door uh, Yemen. Uh, you know, the, the Bab al-Mandeb, the uh, strait that... Uh, goes between Yemen on the one side and Djibouti and Eritrea on the other. You know, it, it's really the strait that uh, connects the Gulf of Aden uh, with the Red Sea. sits right there. And if you go further north from there, you get Port of Sudan. So uh, some, some very interesting developments. And uh, I just want to try and unpack this uh, with Aditya Pari today. So firstly, Aditya, uh, tell us, what do we know about uh, what Russia has actually agreed to? And uh, what are they actually setting up there? Uh, It's great to be here, Aditya, and uh, I'd love to. So, Russia, uh, TASS is uh, quoting the draft agreement and uh, it appears that Russia is leasing the Port Sudan naval base for at least 25 years. And uh, this agreement can be uh, renewed for 10 years indefinitely if both sides are happy with it going forward. More particulars that uh, TASA is quoting are that four Russian vessels can be berthed in the mooring area, including nuclear-powered ones, as long as uh, the environmental aspect is taken care of. There's also this very peculiar uh, sentence I'd like to quote exactly from the TASA report that uh, it's quoting the draft agreement that the Sudanese side has the right to use the mooring area upon agreement with the authorized body of the Russian side. So this seems a bit problematic for uh, a state that would like to keep its autonomy and sovereignty absolutely intact. But, uh, well, I guess that's what the agreement has if TASS is quoting it so authoritatively. Yeah, that's, uh, I guess, not all that untypical for such uh, agreements for bases. Uh, We understand what they are trying to set up there, but uh, why are they setting it up over here? Now, one, you know, reason is quite obvious it's right in the middle of these uh, shipping lanes. But is there a specific reason they chose Sudan? Uh, and are there other factors at play? Uh, you know, choosing Sudan in, of, in and of itself is not really something that they uh, wanted from the start. I'll come back to this later. Uh, but for the moment, let's focus a bit on why Russia always looks for warm water ports, you know. Well, uh, it's the geographical uh, setup that they have, uh, their natural geography that forces them to do so. 
so uh, even it has connotations and connections with uh, their ethnic identity connected to their uh, naval fleet you know tsar uh, pyotr velike peter the great is uh, worshiped in russia as this uh, ruler that made us great that to uh, distinguished our civilization uh, at an important juncture in our history so his love for uh, the uh, russian navy was something that is still to this day i i would i i wouldn't shrink from saying that worship by uh, the russian navy and the russian people uh, to this day so outside of the uh, former soviet sphere the only place that they have a major naval base in uh would be syria and tartus so in syria so uh i think this is a matter of reclaiming some of that uh, lost blue water grandeur by the russian navy that uh, the imperial uh, russian navy and uh, after that the soviet navy had so i think uh, this is a, a look to reclaim that greatness uh all right uh now uh, how does russia find the money for this uh aditya because uh, you know this is a economy that is heavily dependent on hydrocarbon imports and navies are of course extremely capital intensive uh, how do they justify uh, expanding their naval capabilities well there are uh, certainly certainly many layers to this so uh i would say it's more of a political thing than it is a cold hard cash so uh you know the russian fleet and the uh, state of uh, uh, readiness and the force levels and the all out to i would say effectiveness of the uh, russian forces bears very heavily on the intactness of the political climate in russia i mean there's no roundabout way to say this but to uh, the survival of the russian state as we know it depends very heavily on uh, how effective the russian forces are in uh, securing russia's interests that are very important to its periphery so the access to trade can only be secured by a navy that can actually protect the oil shipments which are very fundamental to uh, the russian state's finances so in the gulf of aden for example in 2010 there was this uh, uh, hijacking of uh, mb moscow university uh, an oil tanker which saw an operation being conducted by uh, morskaya pekota russian marines against pirates who had seized the vessel and uh, well there's even a movie about it called uh, 22 minutes so it was a very a grave situation and it was resolved only by military force protecting uh, russian nationals on board so if uh, it's a very important to uh, trade sea lane so uh, they're going to definitely need naval protection there for their merchantmen to pass through i just wonder how much my spare cash they will have you know earlier this year we had a price war between the russians and the saudis oil prices plummeted uh, just as the pandemic got started and you know you had lockdowns all over the world there's been something of a rebound now oil prices have settled at something like around the 50 dollar mark uh, we're recording this on 11th december uh, so yeah so you know maybe they 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 expect to have some spare cash maybe they expect to see a sustained uh, rebound in their uh, earnings from hydrocarbons but aditya is there a geopolitical logic to this beyond protecting hydrocarbon trade 
Uh, well, there can be actually a bunch of things uh, if I were to uh, specifically get into it. But, you know, uh, bringing the ethnic identity part back to a bit, I think the Mediterranean is very important to Russia. And uh, this ties back a bit into their competition with uh, Turkey as well. Like, for example, Turkey has a project there for an island called uh, Suakin. So Turkey has a 99-year lease on uh, developing that island and uh, using it. So between Turkey and Sudan. So this place used to be, this island used to be an old Ottoman port city. So uh, this uh, new project uh, for a, a Russian naval base is also being looked at as a way to counter uh, uh, Turkish influence in uh, Sudan. Okay, but how do they uh, decide on Sudan then? Is there a logic to that? Or, you know, is it that, I don't know, uh, they couldn't find a more suitable base elsewhere in, you know, around the Gulf of Aden or elsewhere along the Red Sea? You know, from a very early point after the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, the Russians were uh, looking to expand their capability wherever they could and uh, salvage whatever they could. You know, uh, the Soviet Union used to have Aden in Yemen. Barbara in Somalia, Nokra in Ethiopia. This gave them some power projection capability in Mena Horn of Africa. And Sudan was never Russia's first choice. They wanted Yemen. But then another civil war broke out there in 2012. After which they tried Djibouti. But as we all know, that didn't work out because the US has more influence in that country. Then they tried uh, Eritrea. Contemplated for a bit, had some meetings, but... Uh, nothing major came out of it. Then Sudan, previous administration, uh, offered Russia that, yeah, you could uh, come to our country and build a base, which was uh, received very positively. However, uh, Sudan also is in a very uh, stable place. They have a conflict uh, currently with South Sudan. One of the worst humanitarian crises in uh, recent memory uh, happened there. There was even a military coup. After which, even still, uh, the offer for this naval base stood uh, and Russia just seems to be capitalizing on it. Right, yeah. Uh, you know, Sudan itself is, uh, you know, like you said, it's not all that stable. Uh, but, you know, is there a chance that Russia can add some stability to that country or uh, or is that simply out of the question? You know, because you do hear about how dependent, for instance, Sudan is on Russian hardware. Sudanese military at least. As far as I know, 80% of Sudan's armory since 2003 uh, is full of Russian hardware. You're correct about that. And uh, I do believe, yeah, Russian uh, forces being stationed there would definitely maybe deter some uh, very bad, some very atrocious uh, human rights abuses that might take place. Uh, It might uh, be a positive influence on the country. Uh, but that really remains to be seen. But, you know, there's also this angle, the gold mines uh, in Sudan. You know, they're officially, we know this for a fact, uh, this is quite in the open, that the Sudanese government has contracted uh, the Wagner Group. It's a private military corporation, which is uh, allegedly uh, run by uh, Lieutenant General Utkin of the Russian forces and uh, owned allegedly by... Uh, Yvagne Peroskin, uh, who's also uh, known as Putin's chef. So uh, these two alleged confidants of uh, President Putin uh, have a very high say in this matter, I'm assuming, if uh, the allegations are correct. 
Yeah, the Wagner Group is uh, is quite an interesting entity, right? It's been involved in a lot of the fighting in the Syrian civil war. And in uh, 2018, it was actually involved in a direct firefight with U.S. Special Forces, uh, who then uh, used air power to uh, reportedly kill several members of the Wagner Group. So, uh, yeah, the Wagner Group will, I think, remain quite an important force in East Africa and the Middle East uh, for some time to come. Now, I want to move away from you know, mercenary groups and bases to, you know, broader sense of Russia's Navy and uh, how it sees power projection. You know, uh, typically when we talk about Russia's Navy, we say, you know, it's, it's, it's highly split up, right? You have a fleet in the Black Sea, you have another fleet in the Baltic and the Arctic, and then you have another fleet in the East. Uh, so this is, you know, Russia's the quintessential land power, you know, and perhaps its Navy, like you said, uh, owes its origins uh, to Peter the Great. But at the same time, uh, Russians are investing in expanding their navy, uh, despite their despite their economic problems, and uh, they do seem to have some ambitions about their aircraft carrier, uh, the Admiral Kuznetsov. Can you tell us about what is going on with that carrier and how it fits into this broader pattern of uh, Russia's behavior? Yeah, uh, this is one of those topics that is very close to my heart. Uh, so you know. Uh, in general, for the Russian fleet, I would say that uh, like any analyst, I, I would also have the same opinion that, yeah, it's a bit sub-heavy and uh, their subsurface capabilities, I'd say, are the best in the world uh, when you look at it to cost to pound-to-pound uh, -pound performance uh, in that way. But carriers obviously are an important part of any uh, fleet and uh, Russia has historically uh, been not so good with carriers. Uh, they have always thought of carriers uh, very literally as aircraft carrying cruiser. So, uh, you know, when you look at Kuznetsov, I'd first like to uh, talk about its negatives. You know, it's an old ship. Uh, it's in derelict state. It has had so many accidents. Crane recently crashed through its uh, flight deck and tore through to lower decks and caused a uh, damage which to me seemed irreparable but it seems that uh, uh, the shipyard uh, is already in process of making it whole again and by uh, 2022 it might be sailing for sea trials so that's astonishing to me considering that in that accident the dry dock that it was on the carrier also sank so, I mean, that's astonishing to me, something that I would say kind of sounds too good to be true. There are also some legacy problems with uh, the ship itself. Like, for example, the boilers on board, which India's aircraft carrier also suffers from the same kind of issues with the boilers. So, there have been reports that the fire bricks used are uh, kind of not up to the mark and uh, causing problems at like 30 knots or so. Similar problems are there for Kuznetsov and uh, Vikramaditya. So that doesn't seem ideal because, you know, a carrier must have at least speed enough to outrun submarines. So, yeah, 30 knots doesn't sound very ideal to me if that's the max performance you're getting out of those boilers. Well, when you look at the crazy design of Kuznetsov, the 12 vertical launch tubes right in the center of the flight deck for the P-700 Granite anti-shipping uh, cruise missile. That just seems to me uh, like something that would come out of science fiction. You know, the flight tech has these hatches which open and uh, the jets behind just look at it and the missiles are launched. I mean, that's straight out of some sci-fi movie. 
but that is a reality that the uh, russian navy has uh, operated this platform uh, and if, and thanks to these launches you have a platform which is just as lethal just as capable even without its air wing uh, talking about the air wing uh, you have the standard uh, loadout of uh, su33 multi role fighters mig 29k which are now being uh, inducted in the russian navy as well those fixed wing pla- multi role platforms in a stobar uh, configuration in stobar configurations uh, these fighters are taking off uh, on their own par uh, on a ski jump ramp which is at the end of kuznetsov's flight deck this uh, definitely isn't the most ideal configuration for uh, such capable multi role uh, fighters because uh, it limits the fuel they can carry it limits the uh, weapons loadout they can carry so like all stobar carriers uh, short take off but arrested recovery carriers where uh, the fighter jets are launched with their own engine power and recovered when they land on the uh, flight deck uh, with two arrest wires three arrest wires so stobar configuration does uh, uh, impact a bit on the combat effectiveness of these jets Uh, in the carrier's air wing but yeah there are other aspects to this platform as well including the launches that i just talked about uh, for the uh, p700 granite so i guess this crazy ship definitely deserves to be uh, something to be beholden and uh, uh, as much as people talk about it not having much life left in it i mean i would say that uh, uh, life extension reports do uh, take a platform quite a bit we've seen this with uh, indian navy's own uh, vikrant and virat carriers so yeah i don't really believe that uh, uh, russia is just yet ready to say goodbye even after uh, this life extension refit would give kuznetsov five or six years in service no i don't think that's the end of it there's going to be more in this ship's lifetime yeah that it's super interesting you know uh, for listeners who are just trying to wonder what on earth it looks like to have missile tubes uh, on the deck of an aircraft carrier just definitely go and google some photos it's it's quite fascinating anyway thanks so much aditya we love having these discussions uh, about the world's navies and uh, especially when they come and do something in our extended neighborhood around the indian ocean for the inbreeders who are actually interested in uh, the russian navy i would recommend a very recent book uh, it came out just last year on admiral gorshkov admiral gorshkov was an admiral of the fleet of the soviet union the man who really shaped the soviet navy and as a result the russian navy of today you can definitely check that out if you're interested we'll also add a link in the description to uh, an article by samuel ramani who has done some fairly interesting analysis of russia's move to set up a base in the port of sudan uh, once again thank you aditya Thank you Aditya for having me and I'd also echo those recommendations definitely and thank you for joining us on all things policy Please consider signing up for Takshashila's courses applications are now open and you can apply at www.takshashila.org.in/courses If you liked our show Don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM podcast app, ivmpodcast.com, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And hey, 
If you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashilainst or our website takshashila.org.in.